I'd like to read from Hebrews 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. If you'll recall, we had this passage the first Sunday of June, I believe, in our Sunday school lesson. But this is affirming the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the first three verses, as the one who spoke to us from God, and then in chapter 2, he's telling us to listen, have a willingness to read, to listen to what God has declared for us. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have forgotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wings, winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, unright of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you and the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like the robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I greet you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. We honor him. The word of God honors him. Thank you, Brother James, for that choice passage of scripture. And in today's message, we will see that God himself also honors him. There are a lot of divisions 
among Christians these days that sometimes are confusing to us. Where do we come out? What do we say when people who say they are Christians ask us those hard questions? Well, why shouldn't Christians help defend their country? Even Joshua and David in the Bible were men of war. May Christians divorce and remarry? It's not easy to answer. What's the true nature of marriage? Is it a marriage if two men or two women commit to live together? And how do we live a Christian lifestyle in practical daily decisions of life? How do we answer those kinds of questions? Does it matter how I spend my time? Our study this morning focuses on a, an amazing story right from the life of Jesus, and it is a story. And infused in that story are threads of Jesus' life and ministry that bring together a beautiful picture of who he is, of what he was here for, and about his message that he, he gave. In light of who he is and what his ministry is, we find then a guide for how to believe and what to choose and how to live our lives. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 9. This story is a favorite of mine. It is also recorded in Matthew chapter 17 and in Mark chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 28, I'll read only the first phrase at this moment. Now about eight days after these sayings, and right away we begin to wonder, well, what happened a week ago? What was it back there? And we don't have to look far, just to the preceding verses, because nothing is recorded of this week between these sayings that it's referring back to and this story today. Jesus lived a very active life. And for three years, he ministered in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Galilee, and Samaria. The first year was relative obscurity. The second year, or longer, was packed full of public interaction, teaching, miracles, it was a year of popularity, we sometimes say. But now in this story, we are in the third year. And it's a year of, of declining popularity. John the Baptist was recently murdered. Jesus' followers have been misguided, and they're expecting the wrong kinds of things. They want a king who can provide bread. And so when that didn't happen, they up and left. A lot of them did. The hostility of the Jewish leaders is increasing. It's rising. And so this last year or so of Jesus' life is more of a private ministry in which he calls his disciples apart many times to teach them in a quiet setting, uh, just him and them alone or a small group. And he focuses his ministry more on the 12. And in this story, in these accounts, Jesus has withdrawn from the populated areas of Judea and Galilee, and he's gone up to the northeast, to Caesarea Philippi. And up there just one week ago, an event took place that the disciples never forgot. There are four segments in this event. The first was when began when Jesus asked the question, who do men say I am, and who do you say I am? And that put the question right to the disciples. And they had to examine and think about, how should I answer that question? Who is this Jesus? And it was Peter who made that great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A profound statement to acknowledge that the Christ, the Messiah, is also the Son of God. And Jesus commended Peter for that statement, for that confession. He said, you didn't learn it by yourself, Peter. The Heavenly Father taught you. And I'll tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And with that, Jesus made the first introduction of 
the church to his disciples. And I think they're probably wondering, what does he mean? What's this going to be? But he promised he will build his church. And then he followed with something that really shook the disciples. From that time, he began to tell them in plain language something that had only been hinted at before. But he told them in plain language, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He will be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the leaders of the people. He will suffer many things. He will die. And he'll be raised to life. Before this, Jesus has known it was coming, but the hints and clues were kind of vague. You know, like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Okay, what does that mean? You know, and we see it now as definitely pointing to the death of Christ and his resurrection. But for the disciples, this was the first clear, pointed, plain language declaration. He will go to Jerusalem, and there he will die, and he will be raised to life. Some didn't understand it. Peter couldn't stand it. And Peter rebuked the Lord. Oh, Lord, never. This shouldn't happen to you. No. And with that, Jesus had to put Peter in his place and say, Peter, get behind me, Satan. The things you're saying are not the sayings of God. And the fourth element in this little story one week ago was where Jesus began to tell them, if any of you want to follow me, if any man wants to follow me, he's going to have to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Cross? That sounds like death. <laughs> that sounds like the end. And again, I think the disciples were trying to understand what does Jesus mean. But that clear call to follow Jesus as a disciple and to follow him even to the point of denying self and dying, Jesus gave that. And for a week now, there's no recorded story or conversation. We're not sure what all happened in there. But this one week later, our story picks up. And I think Jesus is going to build on what has just happened and carry that a little further, especially for the three who are chosen to go with him. And so let's begin reading at Luke 9, 28 to 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared with him in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were very heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake and they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. In this story, vivid as it is, we can picture sort of what was happening. But here are revealed also the essential elements of the mission of Jesus Christ. Here we find clarity about his person, about his work, and about his message. The setting here, according to the other Gospels, is that he was up a high mountain. Most of us think that it was at Mount Hermon, not so far from Caesarea Philippi, this one-week-old event. 
up a high mountain, and he took just three disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him. They already had been chosen at one point to accompany Jesus to the bedside of Jairus' daughter, another occasion where death was a prominent element. And a third time, which will happen later, these three were selected as well to go with him to Gethsemane, where death was again an element. Peter, James, and John, walking with Jesus, he took them, he led them up the mountain to pray. Jesus prayed. Probably at night, clues at least indicate that it was, they were sleepy, we know that they were sleepy, the dazzling brightness of Jesus' uh, transfiguration was obvious, and um, we typically think of this as being at night. There was Jesus, the Son of God, praying to his heavenly Father. Here is this, this person on earth living a life as the divine presence among humanity, but now in communion with his heavenly Father, whose presence he left as he was born to the Virgin Mary. This time, however, something so unusual happens. Luke often mentions that Jesus is a man of prayer. But this time, something so unusual, these disciples never forgot it. As Jesus prayed, his face shone like a light bulb. There was a gleaming brightness that emanated right out of his being, coming from within, not something from without as if it was a light shining on him and reflecting, but coming from within so that even his clothing were bright and shining. Some of the words in the other Gospels indicate there was flashes of light. I think of strobe lights, perhaps, or, or something brilliant and, and flashing and bright, glistening as snow, it calls it. This is the transfiguration of Jesus. That big word means that he was transfigured or changed and his form was so altered or different that this bright light was shining out of him and they could see it. The human body of Jesus, sometimes we call it a veil. That veil typically withheld us from seeing the glory of his inner being, of his soul spirit, of his divine essence. But at this point, that veil permitted the light to shine forth. At this point, that brilliant light gave evidence that Jesus was, is, the true divine son of God. It was a revelation of his inner character. And there was nothing really in his life, in his body, in his being that would have hindered that light from shining out. There was no sin, no flaw, no imperfection. He was the perfect son of God. And his light was evident. Glory is the visible expression of the character of God. This was affirming to Jesus if he needed affirmation. This was affirming to the disciples that this truly is, like Peter said, Christ the Son of God. Yes, Peter, you were right. <laughs> but there's more here. There were two guests who arrived to talk with Jesus. Heavenly guests, people from long ago, and the disciples recognized them. The first was Moses, and the other was Elijah. And there they are in the glory of Jesus discussing something with him. Why these two? Moses. Think back to Exodus. Think back to the story of Israel in Egypt, in slavery. And God raised up Moses as a powerful, mighty leader to confront Pharaoh, to call for the ten plagues, to lead the children of Israel out, to bring them to the Red Sea and through it, and on to Mount Sinai. And there, Moses, their great leader, the one who could talk with God, was able to share with them 
the covenant, the laws, the commandments, the directions of God. Moses went up on the mountain and brought the law back. Moses, always referred to in Jewish history since that time as the lawgiver. The five books of Bible that, that open our Old Testament, the law of Moses. Moses, better than George Washington, the founder of the nation, you might say, the leader in those beginning stages. Then there's Elijah. Elijah? He didn't even write a book. But what did he do? The bold and fearless prophet of the Lord who stood up with Almighty God and for Almighty God in a time when the whole nation was apostatizing, when the king and the queen were bringing in Baal worship, Elijah stood up to call Israel back to the worship of the true God, and he confronted King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel. He had that contest on Mount Carmel. Elijah did many other powerful miracles in the name of the Lord God. In a way, in a very real way, Elijah represents all of the prophets of the Old Testament. Mighty in words and deeds. And so in Moses and Elijah, we have representative of the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament era is here. All the Old Testament saints are represented here and are talking with Jesus about something that, that is very dear to their hearts. Something is very important to them. Furthermore, these two men are two that had witnessed themselves a glimpse of the glory of God. You remember probably both of those stories, and I won't repeat them now. But Moses and Elijah, each in their own time, had a vision, an encounter with the glory of God. And here they are, witnessing again the glory of God, or the glory of Jesus Christ, if you please. Yet, both of these men had come to the end of their lives with their tasks unfinished. Moses, for 40 years, had led the children of Israel through the Red Sea to Sinai, through the wilderness, came to the edge of Canaan, but he couldn't himself go in. And so, he walked up Mount Nebo. There he died, and God buried him. Elijah came to the end of his life. He had tasks to do. He passed the mantle on to Elisha to carry on those duties and tasks that God had given him. And suddenly, the horses and chariot of fire appeared and whisked Elijah up to heaven without dying. Strange. They both lived in faith. They both passed off the scene and now they're here speaking with Jesus about, about something that is as yet not yet finished, not yet accomplished, but that something that Jesus would accomplish soon at Jerusalem, his departure. The Greek word is the word exodus, which right away draws us back to Moses and the exodus out of Egypt. It draws us back to Elijah and his exodus with the chariot of fire. But they're talking with Jesus about his exodus, his departure that he would accomplish, a word that indicates effort, concentration, deliberate attention. What will he accomplish at Jerusalem, this departure? Certainly they're speaking with Jesus about his coming death, which would be an exodus, his resurrection, which would be an exodus out of the tomb, his ascension into heaven, which would be exodus from earth. Why is this of such importance that they talk about it? Oh, they didn't even mention the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't even talk about casting out demons or raising the dead stilling the storm. Why this focus on the death of Jesus? Why do these Old Testament saints have such a keen interest 
in this one part of Jesus' life. Their interest in that and Jesus' commitment to that indicate that that event is the focal point of his life and ministry on earth. It is for that reason that he came. It is for that reason he's lived these 30 years with a public ministry of three years going toward Jerusalem, staging his life, his activities in such a way that nothing happens outside the will or timing of God so that he will be at Jerusalem at the right time for this event, his exodus. Just a week ago, the disciples had a glimpse of death for Jesus and couldn't stand it. Now they're getting a glimpse of his glory. <laughs> Moses and Elijah had, in their lifetime, gotten a glimpse of his glory. And now they're discussing his death. For Peter, you know, a week ago, that was unheard of. To think of his, his son of God, the Messiah, going to die, and Peter rebuked Christ for it. God has a way of bringing these two contradictory concepts together. For us, they may be contradictory, that the Messiah, son of God, would actually die a human death. But in God's plan, and in the transfiguration story, it's obvious these are part and parcel of the same plan of redemption that God Almighty has fashioned. It is this for which the Old Testament has looked forward to for these centuries, the time when the Passover lamb will be sacrificed and a complete and perfect sacrifice will be made for their sins to give them deliverance so that they can make an exodus from that life of sin and slavery and be free to live in the land of promise. Yes, the exodus. Oh, it would be interesting to have recorded this conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. What did they say? We're not sure. I had to wonder if perhaps Moses and Elijah were imploring Jesus, please go through with it. Don't, don't be deterred. Uh, obviously, in a gl glory state as he was, he was fit to go right on to heaven, just like that. And he could have bypassed the cross. And maybe Moses and Elijah were, were encouraging him, stick with it, go through with it. We, we need you. For truly they did need him. Moses had well instructed the people of Israel about the Passover lamb and the perfect lamb that had to be examined and brought before the before the sacrifice to de determine that it was, was truly fit for, for the sacrifice. And that Passover lamb whose blood was shed and the blood was applied on the doorpost, Moses had taught them carefully all of that. And yet, throughout Moses' next 40 years, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice was offered. There never was enough. It was never perfect. It was never complete. It was never the, the final sacrifice that would take away all their sin and bring them into, into uh, restoration with God. Moses knew that there was need for a perfect sacrifice. And here he is seeing in the light and glory of Jesus, the perfect man who has no reason in himself to die, Therefore, it qualifies to be the sacrifice for others by dying. Or perhaps in this conversation, Jesus was reassuring Moses and Elijah that he would go to Jerusalem. He would become their perfect and righteous Passover lamb. And he was assuring them, your redemption draweth nigh. And they're saying yes. And in the presence of the glorified Son of God, they're acknowledging God, do it. So while we don't know the specifics of a conversation, the story gives us enough to realize, number one, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ is directly in line with the Old Testament. 
Here are these Old Testament representatives talking with Jesus, not about the other events of his life, but about this one, the death, the death that he will accomplish when he gets to Jerusalem. Number two, the plan of redemption that was begun in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of what would be accomplished at Jerusalem. It is to be established there as Jesus Christ establishes a new covenant between God and man. We also see that God is able to blend those two seemingly contradictory concepts. Perfect Messiah, Son of God, and human suffering and death into one person in the plan that will culminate at the cross in Jerusalem. Another thing this tells us is what Jesus talked about suffering and death, he was right. And Peter, you were wrong. It is a part of the plan. And Jesus intentionally told them about it and intentionally sets his face to go to Jerusalem so that he will be there right on schedule. Another thing this event tells us is that Moses and Elijah, the grave isn't the end. For those who die and are buried, there's something hereafter, glory. For those who get taken alive up to beat the Lord in the air, we call it the rapture, <laughs> there's glory thereafter. We will see Christ in glory as we, whether we identify as Mo, with Moses or with Elijah in that kind of experience. So, so far we can see a lot of things coming together here about the person of Jesus. Who was he? He is the Son of God. God himself attests that with his own words, you know, just a bit later here in this story. This is my Son. He is divine. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is the perfect son of God and that glory shining out of him attests to the fact of his sinlessness, his perfection, his deity. What does this tell us about his ministry or his work or why he came to earth, what he's about? The discussion between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah about his coming death underscores the reality and the fact and centrality of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as being why he came, what he was here for. The salvation of Moses and Elijah and all those Old Testament saints who died waiting for the perfect sacrifice depends on Jesus. The salvation and redemption of people who are alive today depends on the death and resurrection of Jesus. We, like Moses and Elijah, are keenly interested in that event, <clears throat> for that is why he came, and that is what he accomplished. But there's more. Peter and James and John, sleepy as they were, got some of this. They saw some of this. They heard some of this. And suddenly they're realizing these men are about to leave. I don't know if they were shaking hands or saying their goodbyes or what, but they were about to leave. And Peter, this is so glorious. This is so good. This is so marvelous. Uh, he just wants to stay here, you know? And Peter speaks out, as Peter often does, just blurting it out. Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three tents or shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter meant well, but again, he did not speak for God. Peter wants to be here, on the mountaintop, not in Jerusalem, the suffering and dying. Peter wants to just stay here. And how often are we inclined to wish for that mountaintop experience to just continue on and on? And to kind of forget that 
that mountaintop experience gives us a glimpse of glory of the future and sustains us as we go through the valley of suffering to assure us of what lies beyond. So anyway, Peter says, it's good for us to be here. Now, Peter's going to treat them all alike, all with respect and dignity, give them a shelter, a place to stay. Uh, Peter and James and John are going to hustle around and get some tree branches or whatever. Just that quick. As he was still talking, God shut him off. The cloud came, a bright cloud, overshadowed them, engulfed them, whatever, and they were afraid. And a voice came out of the cloud. The timing is significant. The voice came out of the cloud as Peter was coming off with this line about shelters for you and Moses and Elijah. The voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my son. You listen to him. Oh. You know, Peter had been taught by the Father, and Jesus commended him for that a week ago. Peter still needs to learn some more, doesn't he? This is God's Son. Moses and Elijah are but servants. Never neglect this fact. Jesus' relationship with God is one of intimacy and love. The other account says, this is my beloved son. And God affirms a close and intimate, loving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. He says, I have chosen him. I am satisfied and well pleased with him. It sounds like the words that God spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism. Affirmation of who this person is. And now after these years of ministry, God is again affirming underscoring, giving approval to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus' rejection by the leaders of Israel and by the many in Israel who turned and left him and want, uh, did not follow him anymore doesn't say that, they, that he was a failure. God says, I sanction his life and his ministry. It will continue. It is not finished yet. Though the valley of humiliation and suffering and death lie ahead, this glimpse of glory is but a foretaste of what will follow. And then God says one more thing. Listen to him. Peter, don't put Moses and Elijah and Jesus all on the same level. They are not. Jesus has no peers. If you want shelters for them, make a pulpit for Jesus. He is high and above whatever they are and were. To underscore this point, Moses and Elijah were gone. I mean, God whisked them away so fast, they just weren't there anymore. And when the voice of God was finished and the cloud was gone, who was it? It was just Jesus. Those words of God still ringing in their ears, this is my son, you listen to him. What does this mean? Well, for Peter, it means God himself is saying, Peter, you don't refute my son and rebuke him and tell him he's wrong. You listen to him. Now, Peter had heard that a week ago already, but now again, the father is saying, I stand with Jesus in what he's saying. What he says is right. And you know, this goes for us too. 
if we ever want to disagree with Jesus, or if we're ever intended to explain it away and refute what he says and say that's not really for today or that's really not what it means, God would say to us, this is my son. Listen to him. He's right. This also means that we must never equate Moses and Elijah with Jesus. This Old Testament with the message of Christ, the New Testament. We learn much from Moses and Elijah. Thank God for the Old Testament. But when Jesus says something different than the Old Testament, who do we listen to? Our evangelical friends need to hear the transfiguration story, don't they? When they're going back to the Old Testament to justify something that Jesus has given us different word on. God himself does not invalidate the Old Testament or relegate it to scrap pile or tear it out of your Bible and throw it away. No, no. He has brought Moses and Elijah through that whole Old Testament era with, with a great purpose. And they accomplished much for God. But God wants to know that in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and the completion of what was begun in the Old Testament. And now that he is here, we listen to him. Jesus has the final say. Yes, God at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time fast to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. We have deep appreciation for all that the Judaism and the Old Testament has brought to us and to mankind, really. Throughout the Old Testament era, the Jewish faith proclaimed to the world that there's one true God, not many. They gave to the world the written scriptures. They provided to the world a hope, a Messiah will come. And those three things were prominent contributions, positive, that the Old Testament people have brought to mankind, a part of our heritage. We appreciate them for that. Now that the Messiah is here, his message surpasses that of the old, even as his covenant surpasses that of the old. And our study in Hebrews in Sunday school class is a study on this supremacy of Christ and his covenant over the old. So when there's a difference between the old and the new, who do we listen to? Well, ask God who you listen to. God said, listen to him, my son. Jesus holds the trump card. When God says, listen to him, here and elsewhere through the Bible, any time that listening has God involved, it means the active kind of listening that follows through with obedience. Not the kind of listening that we're prone to do with mom and dad or school teacher or whoever. We hear it and we soon forget it. We hear it and we kind of go our own way. We hear it and say, okay, yeah, I agree, and, but then we don't do anything about it. Not that. That's not the kind of listening that the Bible talks about as true listening. If it is true hearing, it is obedient hearing. Remember in James, the line, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So what are we learning in this story about the message of Christ? The message of Christ. His words are sanctioned by God himself, the eternal God of the universe, the creator, had said in that audible voice to Peter and James and John, this is my son, you listen to him. I am God, I approve of this message. The voice and message of Jesus Christ is greater, surpassing than that in the Old Testament. It is vital for our salvation. 
it is important that we adhere the message of Jesus if we are going to be pleasing God, even as Jesus Christ was pleasing God. And so we stand in awe of the glory of this divine person. We honor him for giving himself voluntarily for the purpose in Jerusalem to die and become our savior. And we listen to his message with keen attention and obedience. Suddenly the story's over. It almost feels unfinished, doesn't it? The voice stops, the cloud is gone, Moses and Elijah are gone, it's just Jesus and the disciples standing there. And on his command, they don't tell anybody about this experience until later, after what happened in Jerusalem. How would you finish it? Had you been there? And what would you, your response be? And for that, the, the story it brings us to say, what would I say? As God tells me to listen to the Son. May I offer several things in conclusion here. The truths of this story are, are significant and far-reaching, but so obvious when we think about them. The truths here will impact our worldview. Besides Jesus, there is no one. He has no peer. No Joseph Smith. No Muhammad. No Buddha. No Darwin. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And almost in the background, you can hear God saying, this is my son. Listen to him. These truths will impact our hermeneutic. That is, our way of looking at scripture and interpreting it. They will impact how we understand Old Testament versus New Testament. We will understand and interpret the Old Testament in light of the glory of Jesus. Brother Steve's current sermons going through Genesis are helping us go into the Old Testament and always see it in the light of Jesus and the gospel. He's teaching us a new way of reading the Old Testament. Appreciate it. That's so right. That's what God is saying. Here's my son. Listen to him. And so we see the Old Testament through the lens of the new. So some Christians say Joshua and David were men of war. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And God says, may I hear it? This is my son. Let's try that again. God says, this Jesus says, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And God says, These teachings will inform and impact your priorities, our priorities, in our daily life. There's lots of allurements in the world, things to listen to. The pressures of life are constant and loud. How we choose to spend our time indicates who we are listening to. Who are you listening to? Social media? The news? Music? Entertainment, there are always things to do and listen to besides the devotional time with the Lord. 
and his word. Who are you listening to? In light of the story of the transfiguration and God's emphatic words there, are you hearing it? Jesus himself said, life isn't about these things. Life is more than accumulation of wealth and treasures. Another line he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And God says, do you live by the word of God? Perhaps it's time to recommit ourselves, renew our commitment to active listening to Jesus, to being deliberate about saying, what does Jesus say? How does the New Testament guide my life? What is there here for me to live and do? And to put that into practice. Jesus said, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. May we listen and live by his words. Let's pray. And in our prayer, it may be that you have never yet committed your life to listening to Jesus as the eternal God of the universe commands you to do. This is a time to renounce the listening to other false leaders. Perhaps you're a Christian and you've made a commitment, but need to renew that in saying, I will listen to Jesus. I will give him the time and attention in my life so that I know what he's saying and can follow that. This is a daily kind of issue, a life issue, a lifestyle issue. Make your response to God even as Peter and James and John had to think how they would respond to the truth and the command that God gave them. Father God in heaven, you made it so clear that your son has the words of life and salvation. And we are to listen to him, to devote our attention, our energy, our life to hearing him and following him and obeying him. May your spirit guide us and enable us to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.